Amen. You can have a seat. Good evening, everyone. How's it going? Like three of you are doing well. That's awesome. That is great. Well, I'm glad you're here, and I am glad to be here. Uh, We're going to be in the Gospel of John, chapter 2. If you have your Bibles and you want to begin to turn there, the Gospel of John, chapter 2. While you're turning there, I wanted to just mention... Um, We started the service out with a promo video for something called Starting Point. That is a course that we offer a couple times a year, Um, and it is is specifically for, we say for three kind of groups of people. Uh, One is for new believers. If you're new to faith in Jesus, Starting Point would be a great class for you just to learn about what it means to have a relationship with Christ, how to have a walk with Jesus, kind of learning some basics of the faith, and uh, if you have questions, it's a great time to get those answered. Um, Another group we often say that it's for is for those that may be returning to their faith. And so there's a lot of people that come to church here that have a similar story, and that is that maybe they grew up in church or they went to vacation Bible school when they were a kid or youth camp, or they had some affiliation with a church when they were younger, but now they've been away from church for a season of their life, and they are now returning to church, returning to their faith, really, for the first time in a while. Starting point would be a great course um, if you kind of fall into that group. And then the third group we say it's for is for skeptics. Um, Maybe you just aren't sure about church. You're not sure about this whole Jesus thing. Um, You've got a lot of questions, and um, you would love to be able to ask those in a safe environment. Starting point is is a great great time to do that. And so the course will last 10 weeks. They take a break for Easter and I think one of the the spring break um, weekends. They won't meet. But it'll go um, throughout the spring. During, it'll meet during the 10 o'clock service hour. We tried to make it a, at a convenient time for most people so they could attend services um, either before it or after it. But if you're interested in that, you can register online or out in the commons. There's a place to sign up and register out there um, on your way out as well. But it starts next Sunday. I know they would love to have you if you're interested in Starting Point. All right? This week, we're in the second week of our series entitled Following Lessons in Patient Discipleship. Austin started the series off last week and um, just kind of set it up by talking about the season we find ourselves in as a church. And that is that what we want to really focus on is this idea that first and foremost, above anything else, we're called to be disciples of Jesus. That's our call, to make disciples. But what does that mean? What does it mean to be a disciple? How do I know if I am really becoming a disciple? What are some markers that I can, that I can look at that will indicate that? Because it can be a bit of an ambiguous term. And so what we've done is we put together what we're calling our discipleship pathway. And these are just four very simple, very clear sort of indicators or markers that we think are helpful for you to, to know, hey, am I, am I really, am I becoming a disciple? Am I being a disciple? Am I plugged in? Am I connected? Am I doing these, these things? And so um, Austin and I are just going to tag team this series, and we're going to talk about one of these uh, things each week. So last week, Austin started it off and talked about connection. Um, we talk a lot about the fact that, um, as Kelsey mentioned, um, that, that meaningful transformation really only takes place in your life um, in, in the context of community with other people over a season of time. Like we all want meaningful transformation and we love for it just to be, you know, tomorrow I'm, I'm transformed, tomorrow I am a disciple, tomorrow I'm, I'm who I want to be or I'm who God wants me to be, but the reality is it takes a little bit of time. And that generally happens when you're in community with other people. And so that's kind of a drum we beat around here a lot, right? We want you to get connected. We want you to get plugged in. Uh, Men's and women's Bible studies, small groups, you're going to hear us push that kind of thing all the time because we really believe that one of those markers is connection. What I'm going to talk about this evening just for a little bit is worship. 
Worship is, is another one of those, those indicators. And I know that worship can also be a bit of an ambiguous term. I mean, worship is kind of a big idea. If you've been in church for any length of time, hopefully you know that worship is more than what we do uh, once a week when we gather together as the church, right? Like worship is more than just that. Uh, the Apostle Paul said it this way in Romans 12. He said, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, church, by the mercies of God that you offer or present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. And this is your spiritual act of worship. And so what Paul says in that text is, listen, the, the, the way you live your life and the choices you make and walking in holiness and giving of yourself to serve and bless other people, all of those things are indeed worship. That's part of your spiritual act of worship. And so worship is, again, the way we, the way we live our lives. But I do, for the purposes of tonight and the purposes of our discipleship pathway, I do want to sort of hone in on corporate worship. I want to focus in on the thing that we do once a week when the church comes together, brothers and sisters in Christ, and we worship together. Um, This is something that is um, super important. You're going to see it all through the Bible. God calls his people to gather together, to uh, not forsake the gathering together with the saints. And so there's just something that happens in corporate worship that never happens at any other time in life. And so it is vital and it is important. And this is not something that man came up with. This was God's plan and God's design from the very beginning. In the beginning, in Genesis 1 and 2, you see God as the creator of all things, right? He literally speaks everything into existence. God said, let there be light, boom, there's light, right? Um, But you know, if you know the story of the creation story, it says that on the seventh day, God rested. God took a break. Have you ever thought about why God did that? Have you ever thought about, I mean, he's God. Do you think he needed a break? Do you think he was like worn out? Let there be light. There's light. Woo, that took it out of me, right? Like he's just exhausted. Um, God's God. He's sovereign God. He's all powerful and all sufficient and he didn't need a break. So why is he taking a break? Why is he taking time to carve out this, this other time for rest? And at the end of the day, God is trying to communicate something to his creation, to you and to me, about the necessity, the importance, and the regularity that we take time out to rest and to worship. He is the author of life. I mean, he knows how our lives are to be lived to receive maximum joy and peace and fulfillment in life. And so God's telling us this ought to be a regular pattern, a regular habit of your life. And when we choose to ignore that and say, eh, it's not that big a deal, consistently worshiping and resting, when we choose to kind of cast that off, our lives just kind of get out of rhythm, don't they? We just kind of get out of rhythm from the way God designed us to operate. Um, I used this illustration in the first uh, several, in all three of the morning services, and I think last time I preached on worship, I touched on this, but you know that... Um, Man can tell some things from the natural world about, say, um, a year. Like, you know, if you, if you gave uh, someone enough time, they could tell what a year's time is by just looking at the natural world. They could tell by the seasons, right? There's four seasons. They come around every year. And so you give them enough time, those same four seasons are going to happen year after year after year. I know if we live in Texas, certain seasons are longer than others, right? But the same four seasons come around every year. And so someone could tell you what a year is based on the seasons. Someone could tell you what a month is by looking at the phases of the moon. Every month, the moon goes through the same phases. And so someone could tell you, okay, it's been about a month by watching the phases of the moon. Of course, someone could tell you what a day is, what a 24-hour period of time is, because every 24 hours, there is night and there is day. 
There is night and there is day. And you could tell what a day is, but here's the thing. There is nothing in the natural world that could ever tell you what a week is. You ever think about that? There is nothing in the natural world that tells us what a week is. And yet our whole lives and our calendars revolve around a week's time. The only way we know what a week is, is from Genesis 1 and 2, when God took a break for Sabbath, for rest, and it is solely for the purposes of you and I forming our lives around the regularity of rest and worship. Early in the New Testament, they didn't say Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday. They said on the first day after the Sabbath, on the first day of the week after the Sabbath, on the second day of the week after the Sabbath. Their whole lives revolved around this idea of Sabbath, rest, and worship. It was God's plan and God's design that his people come together collectively, corporately for worship. It's important. So whenever someone says, you know, Dave, I I can worship God on my own. I can worship God in nature. I can worship God out on the lake. I want to go, well, kind of, but you're just missing out on something, right? There's something that happens in corporate worship. It's God's plan and God's design. And so that's what I want to talk about for a minute. In John chapter 2, Jesus, um, he actually gets really, really angry at some worshipers. And I want to just kind of look at this text, and I want to kind of ask the question of why exactly is Jesus getting so upset because I think as we answer that question, it's going to give us uh, some, some things we need to know, we need to remember about our own worship, all right? So John chapter 2, um, I will begin in verse 13. It says, The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. We've already got to stop. We didn't get very far, did we? Right? It's going to be a long night. I'm just kidding. It won't take that long. Let me explain Passover of the Jews, why this is so important. The Passover was the biggest holiday festival um, for the Jewish people. It was a significant day. It was a day of holiness, a day of worship, a season um, that was to be uh, reserved in reverence. It was a spiritual holiday, the biggest of all spiritual holidays for the Jewish people, where they were commemorating God's goodness to them, that God uh, literally saved them. And so this goes all the way back to generations before Um, You might remember the story way back in the Old Testament in the book of Exodus. God's people, the Israelites, the the Hebrew people, they were in bondage or captivity to Pharaoh and the Egyptians. And, uh, you know, slavery being horrible and evil, and it is what it is, um, they were were oppressed and mistreated and the, and the the whole deal. And so ultimately God calls a man named Moses. You might know him as Charlton Heston. I don't know. But God calls Moses to go to Pharaoh and say, uh, let my people go. So Moses does that, and of course Pharaoh says, I don't think so, not letting them go. Um, And then God sends a series of plagues on the Egyptians. He sends plague after plague after plague, and it says that after every single plague, Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Pharaoh would not let them go. He would not let God's people go. And so the final plague, it sort of culminates in the final plague, which was the death of the firstborn in all of Egypt. God was going to do something and get their attention, and it was going to be this, this, this huge, huge deal. And, and so God told his own people that if you will sprinkle blood from the lamb on the doorposts of your homes, then the, the angel of death would pass over your homes, and your families and your lives would be spared. There's a lot of foreshadowing here to the cross. There's a lot of uh, the idea, again, it's all foreshadowing, it's all leading to Jesus, Right? Jesus would, uh, as John the Baptist said, he would be the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus would go to a cross where his blood was spilled, and literally you and I are saved by the blood of the Lamb. 
You see? So this was all foreshadowing and leading up to Jesus. They sprinkled the blood from the lamb on their doorposts, and the angel would pass over, sparing them, saving them. But he would strike down the firstborn of the Egyptians. And of course, this finally gets Pharaoh's attention, and he lets God's people go. But generation after generation after generation, that's what they were uh, celebrating. That's what they were commemorating. And it was to be a holy day, a, a day where you would go to the temple and you would worship a day when you would offer sacrifices and confess your sins to the priest and, and you would get your life right with the Lord. And it was to be a very uh, reverent time and a reverent season of worship and celebration for God's goodness. And Jesus, being a good Jewish male, did like all other Jewish males, and they would travel back to Jerusalem for Passover, a huge celebration. So Jesus gets there for the celebration, and look at verse 14. It says that in the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and money changers sitting there. So Jesus goes to the temple for this holy season of worship and sacrifices and reverence, and instead he walks into a madhouse of farm animals and money changers, right? The temple had been turned into a circus. It was crazy, and Jesus gets really, really angry. Look at verse 15. And making a whip of cords. Now, you don't, you don't make a whip unless you're really, really mad, right? Jesus makes a whip of cords, and he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers, and he overturned their tables. And he told those who, who sold pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. And his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house, will consume me. So they remembered a prophecy hundreds of years before that the Messiah, that Jesus would get angry, that he, that he would have zeal for the house of the Lord. That is where the Spirit of God dwelt. So Jesus gets really, really mad. Now this kind of goes against uh, the way a lot of us sort of picture Jesus, doesn't it? Jesus was not um, kind of this weak, passive uh, peasant from Galilee with like a long flowing robe and feathered hair, just walked around kind of blessing everybody. Like, that's often the picture we think of when we think of Jesus, but that is a very different picture than what we're told here in John chapter 2. Jesus is so angry, he has a whip in one hand, and he's turning tables over with the other, screaming at people to get out of the temple, right? I mean, that's a little different than maybe the Jesus we've often thought of. Here's the question we need to ask ourselves in regards to worship. What made Jesus so mad? What made Jesus so angry? Why was he so upset at the worshipers in the temple? I think there's a lot of reasons. I think one of them often gets talked about probably more than the others, but I really think there's about three different reasons why Jesus was really, really angry. Um, the first one, and probably the most popular, is that, as you can tell, um, religion and faith, by, the day, by this time and this, this, the day of Jesus had turned into nothing more than um, a reason for men to uh, make money and chase financial gain. And it's always sad when faith and religion turns into that. It still happens today, right? It's nothing more than a reason for people to chase financial gain. And so Jesus is really, really upset at this. It goes deeper than just um, they were buying and selling animals. I mean, the reason there were money changers there is because they would charge a temple tax. So in order to go to the temple, you had to pay a fee. You had to pay a tax. And basically what it had boiled down to was the fact that um, what this does is it rules out all the poor people, right? 
It rules out, if you're not of a certain economic status, you don't get in. You can't come to the temple. You can't get in. You can't confess your sins. You can't bring your sacrifices. So religion and faith had turned into something that was only for the economically advantaged, and it was not for the poor people, and this angers the heart of God. Um, In fact, you can't read the Gospels without seeing that Jesus had a particular affinity for the hurting and the broken and the lowly and the poor. Over and over and over again in the Gospels, you see this. He had a particular affinity for the outcast and the hurting and the broken and the poor. So when faith and the religious people of his day had made uh, the temple a place that was only for the economically advantaged, that's a problem. That grieves the heart of God and it angers the heart of God. So Jesus grabs the whip and he drives them out. There's another reason I think Jesus was angry. I don't think it was just about money. I think it was that their worship had become lazy and irreverent. I think their worship had become lazy and irreverent. Here's what I mean by that. Um, I mentioned that God from the very very beginning is the one that designed uh, corporate worship for his people to come together once a week, practice Sabbath and worship. And uh, he was so serious about it in the Old Testament, he actually set up some rules for coming together in worship. And some of those rules required that when you come to worship, you bring your best to God. So in Deuteronomy, when it came to sacrifices and the animals you would bring for your sacrifices in worship, um, you didn't just pick out like the runt of the litter, the one that was lame, the one that no one wanted. I mean, you literally raised an animal and you selected, you picked out the best, the unblemished, uh, spotless animal. And it was, um, it was probably pretty hard, pretty painful to have to bring that animal to your priest, Right? I mean, it probably hurt, it, was, it cost you something, and it was all intended to show that our sin is serious to God. Our sin is a big deal to God. It should cost you something when you come to worship. And so God said, you bring your best. But they're not bringing their best, they're rolling up to the temple and they're going, yeah, what kind of deal can I get on that one, right? I'll take, I'll take that one over. They don't know if it's unblemished, they don't know if it's pure animal, They don't have any connection to that animal. It's not their animal. And so what had happened is their worship had become all about convenience and comfort. And there was no reverence. There was no holiness. There was no selecting or picking out your best. I think Jesus is partly angry because they had become consumers of a religious product, but not reverent worshipers of a holy God. And sadly, we often see that again today, don't we? You see, a consumer says... I want to make the least amount of investment but get the maximum amount of return for me. A consumer says it's about me and my preferences and my comfort and what I want. A worshiper says, no, it's not about me at all. It's about God and what God wants. Where can I make the greatest investment that's going to benefit and bless the most people? That's what a worshiper says. But I think Jesus is angry because their worship had become lazy and irreverent. There's a third reason I think Jesus got upset in the text. There's a few different times in the Gospels where Jesus has one of these moments where he runs people out of the temple. So John's Gospel uh, tells this story that happens at the beginning of Jesus' ministry during the very first Passover uh, that that Jesus celebrates there. Um, The Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they tell of a temple cleansing that happens at the end of Jesus' ministry during his last Passover right before he goes to the cross. But there's no doubt that in both situations, the circus that the temple had been turned into, the buying, the selling, the money changers, the tables, all of that stuff took place in the court of the Gentiles. So the temple was where the Spirit of God dwelt. 
and there were different sort of uh, divisions in the temple. The average person could not go into every part of the temple. You had the parts where the Jewish males could go, and then where the, the, the Jewish women could go, and, the, and then you had the outer area, which was called the court of Gentiles, and that's where all of the people that were really far from God, uh, they, weren't the, they weren't the in crowd, they weren't Israelites, um, they were coming to maybe um, to hear more about God, to get their questions answered. They were the lost people, you might say. They were those that were lost, and the outer courts, the, the, the court of Gentiles, was the only place they could go to get their questions answered, to offer their sacrifices, and to worship, and yet that was the courtyard that was turned into the circus. That was the area of the temple where they were sort of squeezed out or pushed aside and ignored. And I think that grieves and angers the heart of God. And again, I think we see this thing happen time and time again in churches, don't we? I don't have notes this evening, and that's always dangerous when a preacher doesn't have notes, but I did write down one thing in the margin of my Bible. And I wrote it down because I don't want to mess it up, and I want to make sure we hear this and understand this. And I said it in the first three services, but when worship for God's people becomes about nothing more than their own preferences, their own comfort, and their own convenience, then it's those that are lost or far from God that get squeezed out, pushed to the side, and ignored. I'll say that again. When worship for God's people becomes about nothing more than their preferences, their comfort, and their convenience, then it's those that are lost or those that are far from God that get squeezed out, pushed to the side, and ignored. And I'm not here to talk about the way any other church does anything, but I've been in churches my whole life. My dad was a pastor. I grew up in church. I've been at many, many churches, and I've seen this sort of thing play itself out time after time after time, where well-meaning, God-fearing, good church people, after sort of going through the motions for years and years and years of their life, they just sort of settle into their comfort, what they want, their preferences, the way they think things ought to go, and, and without even realizing it, what happens is those that are lost, those that are far away, those that are disconnected, they come and they don't feel like there's a place for them. They don't feel like they connect there. They don't feel loved, welcomed, and wanted. And so I know that our staff and our elders, we've talked a lot about this over the last few years, but we never want the Vista to become a place like that. We want to be a place where people that are far from God always can come and feel loved, welcomed, and wanted. And so we've got to uh, not let this turn into something that's all about our preferences and, and my comfort and my convenience, because when that happens, we simply become consumers of a religious product rather than worshipers of a holy God. And what happens is, left in our wake are all of the people that are lost and far from God that feel like they no longer have a place. And that's exactly what I think is going on in John chapter 2. That's part of why I think Jesus got so angry. Yes, the buying and the selling and faith and religion had become only for the upper echelon of society. And yes, uh, they're, they're extorting people and, and ripping people off, selling, selling things. And um, I mean, there's, there's a lot of reasons here, again, why Jesus gets mad. But I think one of them is, one of, one of the reasons is they'd gotten lazy in their worship, irreverent in their worship, and there was not a place for the lost, the disconnected, the wayward to come and meet with God. So Jesus makes the whip and he drives them all out of the temple, right? And I think we can learn a lot about our own worship from this. So I just kind of thought about what can we do about it, right? We come and we gather every single week. How do we prevent this thing from happening in our own church? How do we prevent this from happening in our own lives, right? So I just kind of thought about three things. And the first one is just consistency in worship consistency. You know um, that 
a lot of people, like you're always worrying. There's a lot to worry about, right? No one questions that. Your future, your finances, relationships, your marriage, your kids, safety, protection, our world. There's a lot to worry about. How do we combat worry? Well, maybe we learn from Mary that we remember the promises of God. We remember the faithfulness of God. That we say, you know what? God has been faithful in the past. God will be faithful in the future. God has taken care of me in the past. God will take care of me in the future. God has brought me through all these things. God will bring me through this. One of the ways we combat worry is remembering the faithfulness of God in the past. That's what Mary does. And instead of worry, she chooses to praise. She chooses to praise. Well, the other tendency that Mary would have had would have been to boast, right? Again, it was prophesied 700 years ago that God in the flesh, the Messiah, was going to come through this virgin woman. The angel shows up and says, blessed are you among women, the most favored woman ever. I mean, this is a young high school girl that had every reason to kind of brag about that, right? I mean, that's a big deal. You're going to be the most famous woman in all of history. You're more famous than Oprah, right? This is, this is a woman who, young, is getting, going to get this attention for, for all of eternity, you know, high school girls, right? They're hanging out with their friends. They're talking like, what'd you do last night? Oh, nothing big. Just an angel showed up and told me I'm going to bear God. You know, nothing, nothing big. What about you? <laughs> right? Like, this is a big deal. And she could have boasted. She could have been really proud and pointed to me. I'm, you know, I'm, 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 I'm favored. But instead, as you read the Magnificat, what you see is that Mary continually walked in humility. She demonstrated humility. She understood that she herself was sinful, needed a savior. Her, her attitude is why me? Like, why would God choose me? She walks in humility, mentioning humility several times in her writing. Instead of boasting, she walked in humility. I was reminded as I read this how attractive humility is to God, that God seems to be drawn to the humility of his people, not the proud, not the arrogant, our minds, our hearts are maybe a little bit divided in worship. And so I think another thing we can do is just be careful that when we come together for worship, for this one hour that we're together, we focus in on God. But to the humble, he gives favor. Isaiah 66, verse 2 says, All these things my hand has made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. James chapter 4, verse 10. Humble yourself before the Lord and he will exalt you. Humility in God's people is attractive to God. And Mary puts this on full display. She had every right, every reason probably to boast about God choosing her. And yet she chooses to walk in humility. Mary has a lot to teach us. She's an unbelievable godly woman. I mentioned already that, again, she only appears three times in all of the ministry of Jesus. Once in Cana at a wedding, Jesus performs his very first miracle. Mary is there um, when the, they run out of wine. Mary approaches Jesus. Apparently, Mary was some sort of a host for this wedding. We see her then a little bit later um, as Jesus' ministry demands get to be a lot. It says that his family was worried about him. His ministry demands were such that he wasn't even able to eat. And he was, uh, there was a lot going on. And so his family tries to stage this like intervention where they, they go to him and they're going to try to pull him away. And essentially Jesus like rebukes his family. 
He's like, no, I'm going to be about my father's business, right? And then the final time we see Mary in the ministry of Jesus and the life of Jesus is at the cross, where she stands there at the foot of the cross and she watches her son who is crucified give up his life. I can't imagine the anguish that Mary must have felt. Incidentally, one of the last, uh, some of the last words uttered by Jesus from the cross was to look down and make sure that his mom was taken care of. He looks down and sees John, his beloved disciple, and he essentially entrusts John to take care of his mom for the rest of her life, and that's what John does. But Mary watches her son die, and it just struck me as I was studying about Mary this week that while she was his earthly mother, he was her eternal Lord and Savior. And that as she watches her son die on that cross, Jesus accomplishes for Mary the same thing that he accomplishes for all of us. That our sin goes on him, that he dies in our place as a substitute for our sin, absorbing and satisfying the wrath of God that is rightfully due to us because of our sin. Jesus was Mary's Savior just like he is our Savior. And I think that Mary herself would be appalled that anyone would sort of worship her, pray to her, praise her. I think Mary would be the first one to stand here and point us to her son, Jesus Christ, and say that he's the one that saves. He's the one worth following with your life. Yeah, we can learn a lot from Mary. And maybe there's a mistake of some to elevate her too much. Sometimes maybe we're guilty of swinging too hard the other way and making very little about her life and really just reading past her when it comes to the Christmas story. But make no mistake, she was an unbelievable, humble worshiper of God who can speak a lot to us. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for um, the truth of your word. Thank you for giving us the story of your earthly mom. And I pray, God, that we would learn some lessons from her life, that, God, that we would trust you and we would walk in faithfulness to your word and apply your word to our hearts and our lives the way Mary did. Lord, I pray that when we are prone to worry and, and have anxiety in life, that we would follow the pattern of Mary where we remember your faithfulness. God, we would look back on your, your faithfulness uh, to us and, and be reminded of the fact that you're a good God and that ultimately you will have the victory. Lord, I pray that when we have a proneness to be proud and to be arrogant, to boast in ourselves, that you would remind us again to be like Mary and walk in humility. God, remind us that humility is attractive to you and that you draw near to the humble. Lord, most of all, I pray as we remember Mary that we would remember her son Jesus. That we would gaze upon him on the cross the way she did. We would remember his great sacrifice for us. And that we, like Mary, would place our faith fully in him. And we pray this today in Jesus' name. Amen. We want to give you just a moment to respond. The band's going to lead us in a song and worship. Maybe you want to stand and sing and worship. Maybe you want to sit where you are in prayer and confession and repentance. Maybe you want to take communion where you remember the body and the blood of Jesus broken for you and shed for you. Or give an offering as the buckets pass or talk and pray with someone. There's people back there by the sound booth that'd be happy to talk with you or pray with you. However you want to respond today, we just want to give you some time and space to do that. Thanks for being here today.